It's your turn to stay and play at Turning Stone Resort Casino. Enjoy award-winning hotels, dining, and live entertainment. Play the newest slots and classic table games. Check out the state's largest poker room. And don't miss our world-famous bingo hall. Turning Stone is the perfect gaming getaway. And the next big winner might be you. Turning Stone Resort Casino. It's your turn. Well, good morning. This is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips here on WPRO. Uh, we're here every week to help guide you through the maze that is the law today. And, um, you know, that's what we're here for this weekend. I know everybody's enjoying a long weekend. And I know if you're uh, listening today, you're probably listening while you're in the middle of getting ready for some fireworks or holiday festivities. And that's great. But, um, of course, we're going to talk about some interesting cases, some new developments in the law. And I know uh, sometimes folks ask, you know, how is it that uh, there's always something new? Well, the law, you know, when we talk about changes in the law, we're really talking about different fact patterns. And so what I mean is, and you've probably heard me say this many times, is that most of our law is what's called common law. And that means it's law that was created by courts way back in the 1600s, 1500s, and was brought to the United States from England and incorporated from France and different areas. And that type of law was then codified, which means that some of it was put into what's called a statute or a general law. Now, most of the time, it's the facts that change. So what do I mean by that when we talk about recent developments in the law? Well, when we a lot of times when we're talking about new developments in the law, it's not necessarily what is changing with the common law or the general laws, although that does occur. What's changing are the fact patterns. So, for example, you may have a case where a person has an adverse possession claim, and by making an adverse possession claim, they perhaps there was some sort of facts that didn't render them a positive decision. In other words, the court came back and said, denied. Or you could have an adverse possession case where the facts say approved. And those change in facts can affect anybody's case. And that's why you always hear me say one case is not the same as the other. We have different types of cases different types of fact patterns. And they're all very uh, relatively interesting when you look at it, but most of us deal with the same type of issues on a week-to-week -week or month-to-month -month basis. And what do we deal with? Well, we deal with contracts, which is a fundamental part of how we interact with one another. Uh, contracts, how do we deal with contracts? Well, we talk to one another, we agree on an exchange of promises. I'll do something if you do something. You perform it, and then the other person does whatever that thing is. That's a contract. And, and we do that every single day of our lives. And whether it's a contract for marriage, yes, marriage is a contract, or a contract to have a house built or a contract to go see your doctor, where you agree to go see your doctor and you're going to pay a copay and your insurance is going to pay a certain amount. Those are all contracts. And so we deal with those types of issues on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, that one area of law touches so many other areas. So for example, 
in a contract, we're dealing with, we could deal with the purchase or sale of real estate. In a contract, we could be dealing with a trust, which is essentially a contract, and that might touch upon probate. Or again, divorce is the breaking up of a contract. Well, how do you break a contract? Let's say you're in a contract and you don't want to be in this contract anymore. But we know in, in family law context, when we're dealing with issues of family law, there's a specific court for that, family court. And family court is there to essentially cancel your marriage contract. Now, when you cancel that marriage contract, it's very much like you're breaking up a partnership. So you have a partnership between two people who formed a contract, you commingled assets, and now you're breaking up that partnership. Now, what do you do? You have to go to court to cancel that contract, and that's family court. And then family court has the authority to make decisions about your finances, who gets what, right, based on uh, a number of factors, and also children, obviously, uh, as to custody and visitation. So all of these issues play into even something as simple as what might be a very happy marriage contract when you get married, but then the divorce is sometimes an unhappy. Sometimes it's happy between folks and it's amicable, and many times it's not amicable. And a lot of disputes come up, I see, on my side of it, where perhaps somebody has inherited property <clears throat> or somebody was left a trust fund. And that other spouse is trying to make a claim to that. And the general rule of thumb is that, uh, or the general law is that if you, for example, if you set up a trust for your child and they get married and then they get divorced, that property and trust cannot be touched by the uh, a former spouse. In other words, it's not subject to equitable distribution under the laws uh, for divorce. And that's very important. And so understanding how one element, in other words, you setting up an estate plan or planning for the future uh, for your family, right? And putting property into trust, whether it's a, a deed or a, uh, an investment account, which you can also do, protects you from your children, but also protects your children from themselves. You know, maybe they're driving with less than ins enough insurance. Maybe they're going through a divorce and now the spouse is saying she wants to claim an interest in that house. Well, that house, that investment account, whatever is in trust for the benefit of that child is protected by a contract. And so it's very interesting how these different issues touch one another. So going back to cancellation of contracts, well, we know in the family context with divorce, uh, you have to go to family court to cancel the marriage contract. You can't just tear it up and you can't sign a new agreement. It actually has to be approved by a judge. Well, what about a contract when you borrow money? So for example, maybe you have credit cards or maybe you have uh, unsecured debt or payday loans or somebody's dealing with issues like that or you're behind on your mortgage. Those are all contracts. Somebody, you signed a contract where you agreed uh, to, they agreed to loan you money and you agreed to pay them back at some extraordinary interest rate. I mean, now credit cards, unfortunately, are so high on the interest rate and payday loans, I believe, are at like 40% uh, 
Um, once you're in them, you can never get out of them. But how do you cancel those contracts? And that's that's the interesting issue. How do you cancel those contracts? And the only way you can cancel a contract is two ways. Number one, you can negotiate with the other party to see if perhaps they'll take a lump sum or you can pay off a different way, uh, negotiate a cancellation of the contract, or you can go through what's called the bankruptcy process. And like family court, where family court is there to cancel a marriage contract, bankruptcy is there to cancel contracts involving debt and the creation of debt. And so many folks will say to me, well, I have, you know, we're paying, sometimes folks come in and see me and it's a part of my practice and I've been doing it for 26 years and it ties in to so many other areas of law, like I say, how one area touches another area. But in this circumstance, sometimes I see a lot of young couples come in and see me who say, you know, we've been paying on the credit cards for two years now. We have about $40,000 of debt. We've been paying $900 a month, and now we're falling behind on our mortgage payment. What should we do? Simple financial advice. And my advice always is, Make sure you keep a roof over your head first because there are different types of debt. One debt is called secured, which means, for example, they hold the title like a car loan. They hold the title or you have a mortgage where they have the title to the house, theoretically. The other type of debt is called unsecured, where you got a loan based on your credit. So they gave you money, but they didn't take anything back in exchange. In other words, they didn't take a title. They didn't take a ring or anything like that. And so you say to yourself, you're paying unsecured debt instead of paying secured debt. And how does that play out? In other words, what happens in that circumstance when you have unsecured debt instead of secured debt? Well, the answer is always pay your secured debt first pay your mortgage, pay your car loan, because you need a, to be able to get back and forth to work to pay those debts. And then bankruptcy is there for the purpose of trying to deal with all of that unsecured debt. So a lot of people will say, well, why you know, is bankruptcy allowed? Why are you allowed to cancel debt? And it's because there's a trade-off. So when you get credit card debt, or you take out a payday loan, or you do a consolidation loan with one of these consolidation companies, and they give you a lump sum of money. That lump sum of money is based on a, or the money that you're given or, or credit you're given is based on a risk factor. And they factor in the potential risk of not being able to get paid any of it back. And that's called your interest rate, believe it or not. That's how your interest rate is calculated. So if you go get a car loan and your credit score is 600, let's say, they may tell you your interest rate is going to be 10%. You're going to have a very high interest rate. Let's say your credit score is 750. Well, your credit, your interest rate is going to be very low. It might be 5% or 4%. And that's the risk factor associated with them lending you money. So bankruptcy is there, whether it's what's called commonly referred to as chapter seven or chapter 13. It's there to help people cancel the debt. In other words, all it does is tears up the promissory note, which means you no longer have an obligation to pay and 
the creditor no longer has the right to collect. And it's non-taxable. And you can only do it once every eight years. But there are different types of bankruptcy, obviously. You can do bankruptcy to try to save your home. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, you can try to file a bankruptcy where you could ask the court to um, reorganize your mortgage payment to save your home. Or sometimes people have a lot of tax debt and they don't want to be in a situation where they are in um, or have their license suspended by the state. So they go into a bankruptcy to reorganize that debt and pay it back over time. So there are there are innumerable benefits to being able to reorganize. And the idea here is that you're going to come out of this, your credit score is going to improve, and not only that, it will make you more productive because now you'll be able to be current on your mortgage, your, your insurance, you'll be able to be current on your car payments. And in addition to that, in addition to that, you'll be in a situation where you will be um, you'll be able to incur a new debt. And the creditors know that. And they're going to give you new credit cards. And of course, it's up to you at that point to be a little bit more financially savvy, not to lean on them so much because it's the interest that gets you. Now, how Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 work, you have to think of it as if it's a complex tax return. And you're basically submitting this to the court and you're saying, court, here are all of my assets. Here are all of my liabilities. What, what do I do with this now? Now, if you're dealing with an attorney savvy like myself, who's done this for 26 years, be able to tell you the ins and outs. You don't lose everything. No one swoops in and takes everything from you. That's a fallacy. And there is very few times where the equity in your house would ever be jeopardized. Um, so, you know, there's so many positives to being able to financially reorganize. Now, the worst case scenarios I've seen are where I have couples come in, maybe they're in their 40s, you know, a little bit younger than me, a lot younger than me, but, you know, they come in and they have started to take out loans on their 401ks to pay back this unsecured debt or even cashing in a 401k. That is always a bad idea. Never touch your retirement. Never, ever touch your retirement. Because the minute you start doing that, you are taking out your future to pay for something current. It's always better to talk to somebody like me who's done bankruptcy and, and handled thousands of bankruptcy cases over 26 years to be able to figure out what your rights and obligations are and to make sure that you're protected. And, you know, again, you're financially planning, especially to financially planning for your future. Just like when we talk about um, setting up a trust uh, and putting property in trust, you're financially planning for your children's future. In this situation, you're financially planning for your future. So that way you can start the process. And most people are able to buy a house within two or three years, believe it or not, of getting rid of that because their whole financial paperwork, in other words, their balance sheet flip-flops it goes from all red to black, and all of a sudden, they have this income freed up. 99% of the people who go through it are able to get back on their feet and say, hey, look, you know, thank you so much for helping me through this. So it's just an avenue, and it's just a means to an end. That's how I look at it. Now, that's how you cancel a contract. So canceling a contract, we know if it's a 
marriage contract, you have to cancel it in family court. If it's a different type of contract for finances, we have to cancel it one of two ways. You can either negotiate with the person to cancel the contract, or you have to go through bankruptcy court. Now, what about a purchase and sales agreement? What happens when you sign a contract to either buy or a contract to either sell your property? How do you cancel that? Or can you cancel that? Very interesting. And there's a... It's time for kickoff, and the Believe Podcast will get you ready for the new season. How do you live through this as a Detroit sports fan? Believe has podcasts covering all 32 professional teams and many of your favorite college teams, too. He's lit it by your defense. You got better. Sideline to sideline, end zone to end zone. If you don't do those things, then you're not even trying your hardest to win at football, and I don't know what we're doing. There was a lot of great players on those teams that I was fortunate to be part of. Search B-L-E-A-V podcasts wherever you listen. A lot of law in that area. And first up, we have Danny from Warwick with a residency question. Hi, Danny. You're on the air with Stephen. How can I help you today? Jake, she moved to Warwick Danny? 20 years ago. Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, hi, Danny. How are you doing today? Oh, hi. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. Um, thanks for what you do. Um, my mother was a Warwick resident. Uh, she She passed away two months ago. Uh, she was a New Yorker like I am. Thank you, sir. Thank you. She was a nurse. Um, she loved it here. So I'm her only son. I'm going to. Um, I'm in the probate process already, but but and uh, you know I trust that will work out fine. But um, she has her car. I just wonder with her car, if I'm allowed to claim that I'm a Rhode Island resident because I'll be keeping property here, her house, or if I because I'm a New Yorker, I, I cannot claim to be a Rhode Island resident. Well, I would say there's two different types of things in the law. So there's domicile and residency, okay? Mm -hmm. So residency generally means where you are, where you put your head in the bed for the majority of the time. And the way the state of Rhode Island looks at residency is if you live in Rhode Island for more than six months and one day, you can claim residency. But generally, that means you're going to have a Rhode Island license and you're going to have, if you're going to register a car, it would be registered in Rhode Island. If you're going to maintain your New York residency and you're going to maintain a vehicle in New York and register a vehicle in New York, then I would probably say that you're not going to qualify for any sort of homestead exemption or residency exemptions for, for the property. Because I because I'm primarily in New York. Okay. Correct. Okay. I, Correct. I, I figured as much. I just wanted to uh, check. I I don't want to play any games with insurance and registering in different states. But if if it was allowed, I, it, it would be more convenient for us to keep it registered here. We we, we don't well, even plan on taking this, the car Danny, with us. As far as insurance is concerned, let me. Mm-hmm. I, I talked about this last week, and I just want you you raise this one little issue, and I just want to reiterate it because it's so important. So there have been a line of court cases that have said um, if your insurance policy is issued from a different state where the car is registered, okay, that they may not be obligated to cover you um, for what's called uninsured or underinsured motorists. So let's say, for example, you registered the car in Rhode Island 
but your residency and your insurance is out of New York and you get into a car accident with this vehicle and the person didn't have insurance. You want to make it what's called an uninsured or underinsured claim. Your insurance company has the option to deny coverage because the residency of you and the location of the vehicle does not match up. And that was just a very recent case that I talked about last week. So you raised a good question that you don't want to mess around with insurance. A lot of mm -hmm. people get caught in that trap. So my, my advice always is if you're going to be using this vehicle to drive around in register it wherever your residence is. And that would be where your insurance policy is issued out of. And that mm -hmm. way the insurance company can't worm out of giving you coverage. Okay. Okay. Very good. All right. Good question, Danny. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. So um, interesting question there. And that was a topic a little bit that we talked about last week as well, because of that line of cases talking about that. If your vehicle is garaged or registered in a different location than where the policy is issued out of your residence, then uh, there may be no coverage. And that's kind of scary, too. You know, I, I brought up an issue just before we took Danny's call and we talked about purchase and sales agreements. So somebody knocks on your door and says, hey, uh, Joe, I want to buy your home. And you say, OK. And um, you write up a piece of paper, you both sign it and he gives you ten dollars for a deposit. I mean, can you cancel that contract? And the general rule is no. When you sign a contract to purchase somebody's property or to sell sell property you can't have a change of heart if you don't like the purchase price or you don't like um something that uh for for example the the closing date or something else that's in that contract there's no second chances at that there's no canceling that contract because the general rule and the general law is when you sign a contract to sell your home, generally, unless there's some extraneous circumstance like fraud or, or misrepresentation or something along those lines, you're actually giving somebody an interest in your property, which means that the person who wants to buy it may have the right to go to court to force you to sell it. And that's pretty scary. I mean, that's scary stuff because the consequences of signing that type of contract are not just, um, you know, a, like a standard contract where you sign a credit card debt. And if you don't pay it, then you try to figure it out later. This is something where you're dealing with your home. So here's my, my advice. Before you sign a purchase and sales agreement to sell your home, print out the documents and review them. If you need a special condition in your contract concerning uh, finding a place to live, for example, many people are selling their homes now and with the idea that they're going to be able to, you know, get the equity out of the home. And but where are they going to go? Where are you going? I mean, there's only 450 or 500 houses for sale in Rhode Island. And there's nothing for sale in Massachusetts either. So where do you go to live? What are you going to rent for three thousand dollars a month? Or sometimes folks, I had a couple come in and see me a few weeks ago, they signed a contract to sell 
and they had talked to their agent about putting in the contract that they had to find suitable alternative housing. But when they signed the dot loop contract, that language wasn't in there, but they had an email exchange with the, with the um, person saying that this was part of it. And it was listed on the MLS that that was part of it. So now the buyer is saying, well, I want to close next week. And these folks are saying, well, we haven't even been able to find a place in Florida to move to, you know, and, you know, now they get a letter from the other attorney saying they're going to sue them for specific performance. But in that case, maybe they have some defenses because it was in, it was in the MLS listing. It was in the um, email exchange that they did want suitable alternative housing. But, um, you know, it's pretty scary stuff because the, co the law, the common law is called specific performance. And when you sign a contract to sell something, the other party can ask the court to force you to specifically perform to sell that property. So that contract that you're putting your John Hancock on has to be, has to be really what you want. So print it out, print out anything that you're going to sign electronically, print it out, read it and make sure whatever is supposed to be in that contract is in there. And if you don't know what to put in the contract or you don't know how to negotiate a contract, call an attorney like myself, been practicing real estate for 26 years. I can make sure that your contract is right. Make sure you're protected. That's the whole point of having legal representation. You're signing a document to sell something for hundreds of thousands of dollars, okay? Your agent, may be representing your interest, but they can't represent your legal interest. And if they make a mistake, you're going to be the one paying for it. So again, before you sign anything on e-sign, DocuSign, whatever it is, print it out and read it or have them send you a copy and read it before you go through the buttons to click. Um, I did receive a few emails during the break. Uh, I guess a couple of people went on my website and shot me some emails. and. Um, Here's a question I had. Uh, I have a wage garnishment started in Providence, Rhode Island. I um, I know who the creditor is, and now they sent me a body attachment. Um, what should I do? So, all right. So generally the way debts are collected is what will happen is you'll sue somebody and say, listen, we signed a contract for $10,000. Um, you owe me, you know, $10,000 plus interest. And most of the time folks will get served with those papers and take the ostrich approach, stick their head in the sand, unfortunately, and not, um, and not answer the complaint, which means when you don't answer a complaint, you're defaulted, which means you're basically guilty of everything that they allege. Basically you owe them the money. Now, this could be for any type of complaint, by the way. If you're served by a complaint for uh, a breach of contract, maybe for a purchase and sales agreement, or maybe a breach of contract for something else, or perhaps you're served with a complaint because somebody got hurt on your property um, and you didn't have insurance in place, you must answer that complaint. You always have to answer. If you don't answer, the court will enter an order saying that essentially you are defaulted, which means that everything stated in the complaint is deemed true and, and, that, and that you lose. So you lose your 
real estate case, you lose your personal injury, you lose, and they can get a judgment. So what happens when the court enters a judgment? Well, a judgment is a piece of paper that basically the court says, hey, look, you owe this person $10,000, or you have to sell this person your house, or this person got hurt on your property, and now you owe them $10,000, whatever that is. Once that judgment is entered, that person can then take that judgment and put a lien on your home. They can take the judgment and they can ask to garnish your wages. So if they know where you work, they can actually say to the court, court, we want to get paid directly by their employer every week, 25% of their income. And that's pretty scary stuff. Uh, and all that happens <clears throat> because you didn't answer the case. See, when you answer a case, that means you're telling the court that you dispute the allegations in the complaint. And basically what you're telling the court is that because you dispute the allegations, you want your day in court. You want a day, a trial day to say why you are right and they are wrong. And that's why it's so important to deal with these issues especially if a constable comes to your door, or you get a certified letter. Very important. You know, I see this in, I see this happen a lot in um, contract cases, but I see it happen a lot with tax lien cases. And what I mean by that is I see that um, people have uh, forget to pay their property taxes or, or the bank makes a mistake and they receive letters from the town saying that taxes are due and the house is going to be sold to tax sale. Then what happens is the house actually gets sold at tax sale. They receive some more letters. And then all of a sudden, there's an order of the court saying that you no longer own the house. And so, uh, oh, oh, my goodness, you can lose your house by not responding to documents, legal documents, which are either mailed to you, certified mail or given to you by a constable. So there are extreme cases of what can happen. But once that judgment enters, whatever that judgment says, it's good for 20 years, and the court has the right to order your employer to start paying them the money. Now, what can you do about a judgment? Well, firstly, if you don't agree with the judgment, you can always seek to appeal it. And timeframes for appeals are so specific. For example, I, you know, I, I'm up before the Supreme Court um, on a couple of cases now on issues of timing and timing for appeals. Uh, um, also, we appeal things from probate court to superior court. We appeal zoning decisions to superior court. Um, and all of those time frames must be met. So if you're unhappy with a decision, you always have the right to appeal, but you have to do it within the specific time set forth in the laws, or basically your appeal means nothing. So all of that comes down to the basic question. If you get some sort of legal papers in the mail, certified mail, or you get handed something from a constable, you need to call somebody like me, who's tried 16 jury trial cases. I've only lost two. I've argued before the Supreme Court. I've done a lot of appellate work from probate to superior court, zoning to superior court, uh, superior court to Supreme Court, district court to superior court. So 
you know, you need to talk to somebody who has 26 years experience and knows how to deal with these issues for you in the most um, efficient way. So that way, when you're fighting a case, you go through it. Now, you may hear me talk a lot about this when we talk about practical and principle. Many times my approach after 26 years is I balance that. So you always have a principled approach. So a, a lot of clients will come in and see me and say, you know, Stephen, I know that this is going to cost me more than anything I will ever receive from it, but they, this is what they did and they should have to answer at least in court as to what they did wrong. And that's called a real principled approach where they know that the money go going to be spent to do something outweighs whatever the recovery, potential recovery could be. Then you have the practical approach and you say to yourself, okay, practically speaking, you're going to spend this much. Here's your budget. What can we do with that? And what goals could we accomplish for you within that approach? And this comes up a lot in adverse possession cases. So in adverse possession cases, we may initiate an adverse possession complaint, serve the other party, but then take the approach that we're looking to negotiate a resolution. And, you know, generally that opens the line of a practical solution to something that could be very contested and be very expensive. So you always have to balance that practical and principled approach. And, you know, I, I look at this also when we're dealing with certain matters um, regarding zoning, when I'm in zoning hearings and we're dealing with neighbors who have complaints, or perhaps we're dealing with other issues other than adverse possession, for example, breach of contract cases or cases such as that. You have to balance um, and balancing it out is really the key. Now, what happens in probate? And why do we need to go to probate? And if you've met with me in the past, you may have heard me talk about this. Whenever you pass away and property is in your name. So in other words, you have a bank account with no beneficiary. You have a life insurance with no beneficiary. You have real estate in just your name. Whenever you have something in your name like that, Essentially, there is a title to that property, whether it's personal property or real estate. Now, how does title, when you're no longer here, change from your name to whoever is going to be inheriting it? How do you get that title out of your name if you're not here to sign a deed? And that's always the biggest one. How do you get that deed transferred, even if you have a will? from you to the person you picked in your will to inherit that property? And the answer is probate. That's what probate is there for. Unfortunately, probate has become an area where, um, you know, I've been doing probate work for 26 years. It's become an area where a lot of families argue and fight over money, distribution of assets, and sometimes they even fight over wills. But I'm going to explain to you what happens when you die and you own property, whether it's a bank account with no beneficiary, a retirement account with no beneficiary, a, um, a house just in your name, and how that property 
gets transferred from your name to whoever it is you wanted to inherit it. Okay. And that's what probate's there for, but supposed to be not just a place to fight and argue. Now, the number here is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776, 401-438-9776. My name is Attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. We're here to answer your questions and guide you through the maze that is the law today. And of course, it does get a little mazy out there when we're dealing with different types of issues. But of course, that's what I'm here for every weekend. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about probate, probate appeals, how to avoid probate. Very important topics. And we're talking about why is probate even there? Why has it been a court for hundreds and hundreds of years and what's the necessity of it and we said that when you own property or you own real estate in your name how does that title get changed from your name to whoever it's going to so that's maybe you have a will and your will says i leave everything to sally okay that's great how does it get to sally well that's what the probate court is there for so what probate court does is it takes your will and approves it. Now, once your will is approved, whoever you pick as the person who's going to be in charge of your estate is the person who is going to make decisions about how your estate is administered. In other words, when does the property get transferred? How does it get transferred? Does the property get sold? And so we have a situation where that person who's appointed as administrator can then affect the transfer, sign the deed and transfer the property or cash out the bank account and transfer the property. That's why probate court is there. Now, probate courts become more complicated over the years. I would say in my 26 years of practice, it's become much more complicated. Now there are tax filing requirements. There are requirements to notify Medicaid in case you were receiving any sort of Medicaid benefits, that they have a right to get paid before anybody else. Um, so uh, there are requirements to give notice to all the beneficiaries or potential ears at law. So it's very interesting how this all works when we go through the probate court process. In the uh, In the situation though, that's how probate, that's what probate is there for. It's there to create what's called a chain of title. So it shows that you were the owner of the property. You are deceased because a death certificate is filed with the probate court. A will would be filed with the probate court that says where your stuff is going to go. And then the administrator administers it and transfers it. That's how the simple part of it's supposed to be. The complex part is usually somebody's not happy. Now, it's better to know that up front. If you know up front that somebody's not going to be happy about the decisions that you're making, then we want to avoid probate. How do we avoid probate? Well, we use a living trust or revocable trust, which means that you have the right to make changes during your lifetime. It's a contract. Okay, it's a contract. And that contract stays in effect when you're dead. It becomes a binding contract, which means that nobody can change it. So if, for example, you paid for Sally's wedding $100,000 and you want to make sure that Joe gets $100,000 more than Sally, right? 
you would put in your trust that the first $100,000 from the sale of my house goes to Joe, then everything is divided 50-50. You could even put in your trust because we paid for Sally's education of $100,000. And that way, everybody's nobody can contest that. That's uncontestable because you're doing it during your lifetime. The problem becomes when you don't do anything. And maybe you just have a simple will. And you know Sally and Joey are going to argue because you put in your will that Joe gets money instead of Sally. And Sally can go to court and Sally could say that, oh, I'm contesting the will. I want my 50%. And um, Joe would say, well, why are you contesting the will? And all of a sudden, Sally comes up with all these arguments. You know, oh, you weren't fully competent at the time you signed the will because you had some dementia or you, you were under the influence. You were being unduly influenced by Joey and, and you took advantage of my parents. And now I'm going to sue and I'm going to tie this up in probate for years and we're going to appeal it to Superior Court and it's going to cost you a lot of money unless you pay me something. And that's unfortunate. It can be avoided by proper estate planning. You know, whether I'm doing estate planning, um, trusts and wills, for people worth millions of dollars, which I do all the time, which also incorporates tax planning, people who own businesses, when we do business planning, or folks maybe who just have just paid off their mortgage and you know they have a small amount of savings. All of it, you're all in the same category where you can plan, not only if you have a high wealth, you can plan to avoid taxes, but you can also plan to protect your home from the nursing home, and you can plan for probate avoidance. Now, listen, this is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. I hope everybody has a happy, safe 4th of July. Please be safe and careful. Enjoy the fireworks. Don't do anything crazy. And of course, I'm here every week for you. I know you appreciate me. I appreciate you too. Just so you know, my office is closed Monday and Tuesday in observance of the holiday. So we won't be there Monday or Tuesday, but we will be in the office Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And of course, the following week, I'm there every day of the week anyway. And I always return your call within 24 hours. My office number is 401 490 4900. 401 490 4900. I appreciate you. I know you appreciate me too. And I will be back 